Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today again on Free Thoughts is Eric Mack. He's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Tulane and author of a terrific little introduction to libertarianism from Polity Books called simply Libertarianism. Welcome back to the show, Professor Mack. Great to be back. Thank you very much. We had you on not too long ago to talk about kind of the origins of libertarian political theory and then how that theory plays out um, and the various ways we can approach it. But there was a there was a chapter of your book that we we skipped. And that's the one that I'd like to talk about today, which is objections to libertarianism. Because unfortunately, what I have found over 10 years of working as a professional libertarian is that lots of people don't agree with us. <laughs> right. And and often they disagree with us for for quite interesting reasons. So I thought it would be fun to dig into some of those. So let's start with a big one. Um, probably the most influential political philosopher of the 20th century was John Rawls. And John Rawls was not a libertarian. Can you tell us a bit about why John Rawls was not a libertarian, what his objections to our ideas were? Okay. Great. Sure. Um, well, I can tell you just in a sentence, three or four sentences what his basic approach is and why it leads to non-libertarian conclusions and then say something about what he specifically uh, thought was wrong with libertarianism. It's very, very striking that, um, that um, uh, he and, uh, and Nozick just uh, had offices down the hall from one another and that um, – Nozick wrote this extensive and I think totally powerful critique against Rawls, and Rawls hardly ever uh, directly answered him, only in a couple of uh, sentences really, but I'll get to those in a second. Uh, so Rawls's basic view is uh, that uh, the correct social order, the, the just social order is the order that ideally situated people would that would accord with the principles that ideally situated people would agree to as the principles that ought to govern their society. And everything depends really on ideally situated there. Uh, basically, Rawls says that the only people who we could trust, in effect, as guides for what a proper society would be, would, people, would be people who were completely ignorant about their own individual uh, aspirations, their own individual talents their own individual uh, degrees of ambition. Uh, and we should imagine people behind a veil of ignorance, completely ignorant about themselves and the particulars of their existence, and completely ignorant about the particulars of other people's existence. And we should try to figure out what these people would agree to as the basic principles. And then we ought to establish a society in which what he called the basic structure uh, was continually operating to try to achieve those principles. And the most distinctive principle that Rawls claims would come out of this whole process is what he calls the difference principle. And the difference principle says, in effect, society should be arranged economically so that the people who are at the lowest tier within society economically should be made as well off as people in the lowest tier can possibly be made. And so he thinks there ought to be a very considerable degree of economic redistribution from top to bottom uh, because he thinks that uh, 
uh, insofar as markets exist and operate, they're going to produce unjust outcomes, even if they operate perfectly according to standard understanding of what markets are, they're going to produce outcomes that do not maximally benefit those at the bottom. And so for that reason and for to fulfill certain other requirements, there has to be this basic structure in society. It's really a structure of social engineers who are continually operating in order to get the society to conform to these principles that these folks behind the veil of ignorance would agree to. Okay, so that's Rawls' basic uh, position. He modifies that somewhat over the years, uh, but that's still the, the, the basic doctrine that he has. Um, and then his objection to libertarianism, his most explicit objection, amazingly, <laughs> is that libertarianism denies that there is a need for or a role for this basic structure. Uh, and of course, libertarianism does deny that there's a need for this basic structure because libertarianism argues that the principles that ought to be enforced in society are principles of procedure, principles that allow people to uh, pursue their own interests and goals in peaceful interaction with other people. And what comes about through that peaceful interaction uh, is just what comes about uh, doesn't have to fit some antecedently endorsed principle about how much Joe should have and how much Sally should have and what the relationships of the amount of their wealth should be. So libertarianism says uh, we should enforce people's freedom. We should enforce people's uh, ability to enter into exchanges or other forms of personal relationship with one another. And as long as people operate in ways that are respectful of one another's freedom, the outcomes are just. Rawls says, no, the outcomes will not be just, because they won't be what these people behind the veil of ignorance would have chosen. And therefore, there always has to be this basic structure. Uh, and the basic structure has to be uh, continuously alert to the world no longer fitting with what the philosophical king sees is the right way for society to be. Once again, libertarianism's deep error, according to Rawls, is that it doesn't recognize this ongoing need for a basic structure. It's, it's happy enough, libertarianism is, with certain sorts of basic rules of peaceful interaction being enforced within society. Now, Aaron mentioned that this was this Rawls is pretty popular, and I think that yeah. Rawlsianism be, becomes popular in a way that is not actually many people who use Rawlsian ideas are not actually referencing Rawls or may not have ever read Rawls. And I think one version mm -hmm. of that is kind of the well-known phrase that I think came out in a, a speech by President Obama, which is "You didn't build that," and different ideas that yes. certain inequalities that yes. you have inherently or by your station are somehow not in the product of those inequalities are not something you deserve. And I think overall, that's an extremely common viewpoint, especially now, even even ideas yes. like privilege could go into some of these Rawlsian ideas. Uh, so that 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 it's itself is not a silly objection to libertarianism that we're not starting the right. world at, at time zero and we have to maybe do something to account for inherent inequalities and maybe redistribute them. 
Yeah. So, so one of the reasons for this veil of ignorance that Rawls envisions, right, as a technique for discovering what principles of justice is, one of the reasons for the veil is his view that the actual attributes of people and what they have actually done in their lives uh, is not is not something that anybody deserves, and it cannot be the basis of any sort of entitlement among people, and therefore people in the this original position in which they're reasoning about what principles should be adopted have to be required to ignore <laughs> what people have actually done for good or for ill. Um, so uh, Rawls rejects the idea that there's uh, that you can say of anybody that they deserve something for what they have done. Uh, the only way you can deserve something is to have done something that the basic structure says you should be rewarded for. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, uh, in other people I criticize in the book, people like Cohen and people like uh, Nagel, uh, all of these people adopt pretty much whole hog this idea that there can be no such thing as dessert for what you have produced. And they also adopt this idea that uh, in order to deserve or to be entitled to what you have produced, you have to deserve or be entitled to the attributes of yourself that have enabled you to produce these things. And that I think is, is the crucial error here in, in Rawls and all these other people. Uh, you don't have to deserve to be the person who produced some enormous benefit <laughs> for society in order for you to deserve to be compensated for what you produced. You don't have to deserve what made you capable of making a contribution in order for you to deserve or be entitled to compensation for making that contribution. Uh, um, Desert or entitlement doesn't have to go all the way down. Uh, but Rawls uh, makes two moves. He says you can't be entitled to what you produce unless you're entitled to what made you capable of producing it. You can't be deserve what you produce unless you deserve everything that made you capable of deserving it. And then he also says, since you don't have a just claim on what you have produced, it's unjust for you to have what you've produced, right? Which is itself a big move, right? So he moves from saying there's no justice in people possessing in proportion, let's say, to what they have produced, to saying it's unjust and therefore justice requires that those uh, differences in outcome be nullified. So all of that is part of uh, uh, the Rawlsian package. One of the um, counters that libertarians sometimes make to to Rawls, and so I just want to see what you thought of this as a response. Yeah. Is he's one of his principles because he's got he's got this kind of set of principles that right. need to be in place right. for whatever comes out of the veil of ignorance to be, you know, just. And one of them is the right. the maximin principle. We want to maximize the minimum so that the the bottom is as good as it can possibly be. And right. and he thinks you do that through redistribution. To a right. great extent, but but libertarians would frequently respond. No, no, no. The way that you do that is through free market economics, is through letting people yeah. trade and yeah. exchange and so yeah. on, and that that raises 
the living standards and we point to you know global the effects of global capitalism and so on. Do you think that that's a decent response to him? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I mean, uh, I think it's correct to say uh, that um, in the long run, people who are at the lowest rung or likely to be at this l- the lowest rung uh, do better under an actually existing free market system than they would do under any likely actually existing highly distributivist oriented state. Uh, for all the reasons that that you know we have for thinking that people who are relatively poor and powerless are not really going to gain by by creating powerful state institutions, other the people who create those institutions are going to gain. Uh, so I, I the, this is the sort of Hayekian line I think, which is that uh, if you're concerned about the poor over the long run, you want to have uh, uh, private property and free market institutions and all that sort of stuff. But I think the the to take on board uh, what I think is the ungrounded idea that uh, justice requires that those at the lowest rung have as much as people at the lowest rung can possibly have. <laughs> I think it's wrong to take on that idea because it's a mistaken idea. There's no good justification for that idea. And it means that advocates of Marcus have to be continuously making highly contentious claims to the effect that uh, whatever they're defending contributes to the people at the lowest rung being as high up on the scale as they possibly can be. And that's not something that, 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 that anybody can ever establish, right? I mean, uh, market-oriented uh, people are usually very sensible about uh, uh, recognizing that we can't uh, predict in detail uh, how different sorts of social systems are going to work. We can predict in we can predict that uh, a market structure and private property and free markets and so on are very very likely to benefit everybody who participates. But you can't predict about any set of institutions that it's the institution that it is the set of institutions that will make the worst off as well off as 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 high on the economic ladder as they can possibly be it's a it's a crazy burden for libertarians to take on and it's a mistaken burden because uh, the doctrine is not true it's not true that justice requires that uh, uh, those who are at the lowest rung uh, be raised up as high as they possibly can be let me just say a sentence on that right so in principle uh roles uh, this difference principle would assert that uh, no matter how distributions have come about, so imagine we have a distribution that's come about for just two people. Uh, Joe now has a million dollars, and uh, Sam now has uh, um, $10,000, and we don't even inquire about how they got into that position. Right. Um, And someone comes along and says, but the difference principle tells us we should always alter existing distributions if it would raise the condition of the worst off. And so I see how by taking nine hundred thousand dollars away from a from Joe, uh, we can increase Sam's endowment of money by one hundred dollars. Right. So we go from a million 
10 and 10,000 to I've forgotten my numbers now, uh, to 100,000 and 15,000 or something like that. We can, it requires that enormous costs be imposed upon people who have acquired more in order for the most the smallest gains to be provided for those who have acquired less, no matter how peacefully and productively <laughs> the first party has acquired their greater amount. So it's 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 it's, a, it's really an extraordinarily incredible principle, and libertarians shouldn't uh, embrace it. Uh, and they shouldn't try to claim that a uh, free market world is going to be the best way to satisfy it. They can both of those claims are mistaken. Well, it seems like um, people might listening to you might be thinking this guy doesn't care about the poor at all, or a libertarian shouldn't, on any principle yeah. of justice, yeah. care about the poor, yeah. which is maybe yeah. exactly yeah. specifically what you're saying. But then, in that sense. How should libertarians think about yeah. the status of the yeah. worst off people? Because that's a, a, sure. a, a fairly sure. common political sure. belief sure. and B, something that sure. appeals to our intuitions like kindergartners sure. care about, you know, sure. some of sure. them care about the kids who are who have less. So so are we being heartless right. in this regard or, or are we just right. sort of playing a different game? Right. Well, um <laughs> Heartlessness, no. <laughs> um, the um, uh, so part of what I was saying just now, and I think part of what any libertarian would say, is that uh, um, one has to have a more nuanced understanding of how institutions and work and how political power works, and um, um, a strong case, a very strong case, can be made that. Um, uh, free market institutions, private property, generally private property, rule of law, um, all this, these core classical liberal or libertarian values, uh, a world in which those institutions are functioning and are robust is a world in which uh, uh, there's a very, very strong tendency for everybody's uh, both economic situation and even non-economic situation uh, to improve. So this is a mutually beneficial uh, set of rules. Uh, we can't say um, how much any particular individual or how much any particular class of individuals will gain. We can't make those sorts of predictions. Uh, but we know another thing, which is that these, uh, when you have market institutions and private property and rule of law, and you don't have uh, uh, the typical um, attributes of state power, namely cronyism of all sorts, uh, that you have a great deal of economic mobility. People move up uh, from generation to generation or within their lives uh, up the income scale in market societies uh, much more than, than people move up in any other sort of society. So if you want to give everybody a good chance, <laughs> uh, you need a society that produces opportunities and a society that produces growth. And that's what you uh, that's what you have in the sort of world that classical liberals or libertarians prefer. It's not the case that uh, institutions that have been sold to people on the grounds that they're going to help the worst off have actually helped the worst off. So uh, uh, it's an illusion to think that. Um, the uh, benevolent dictator who's going to come in 
and uh, order people to do various things uh, through state mechanisms to improve the lives of the worst off. It's a mistake to think that that's part of the package of institutions that really helps the worst off. So that's part of my answer. I'll, I'll say a personal thing on this. Uh, I um, uh, the one thing that I've seen that uh, um, um, that has really struck me is uh, my kids have gone to uh, went to um, public schools when they're in grade school and high school and so on. And they basically attended schools that were predominantly minority schools. And what I saw was the incredibly awful, the incredible awfulness of state school systems and uh, uh, basically just warehousing kids uh, at best. And uh, when I hear people talking about uh, our, our libertarians lacking compassion, I think about how it, I actually tried to do some things. I actually tried to get some TV interviews and things like that to talk about how horrible the system was. Um, but I was very unsuccessful. I didn't accomplish very much at all. But I think about all the people who talk about the need for a compassionate society and then line up with the teachers unions and the state uh, education bureaucracies to prevent any sort of measure that allows kids to escape and allow parents to help their kids escape from the schools. So I think there's an enormous gap uh, between uh, people who pontificate about uh, the need for compassion and people who actually do things that would uh, help people who, uh, who need who need to be free to help themselves. I'm going to move on to another objection and this is one that I have heard fairly frequently and I particularly heard it when I was in law school um, and you uh -huh. you talk about a version of it that comes from Murphy and Nagel. But, but broadly, right. this is that libertarians <clears throat> care a lot about property rights and that we, we tend to take property rights as innately existing or at least something yeah. that exists outside yeah. of government. So what belongs to me belongs right. to me no matter what government has to say about right. it. Um, right. And this objection right. says, no, not really. Like that that's that's kind of a mistaken way of thinking about property rights. And there's there's a there's a handful of variations that I've heard. One is that property rights are simply defined by the law. It's like a legal positivism kind of account. And so, yes. so property rights simply are what government says property rights are because without anyone defining them into existence, they simply wouldn't exist. And so it makes it's nonsense to talk about them outside of this context. The other slightly softer version is even if you have kind of some sort of innate ownership, um, the the contours of that are need to be defined. Like, what does it mean for me? You know, I I say I own this land, but does that mean that you're not allowed to you know walk across the corner of it or shine light onto right. it or all these other fly over the top of it? And so we need we right. need a system. Right. And so as a result of that, property rights are either entirely or at least in large part kind of conventional. They're they're yep. like this is the yep. cultural relativist theory of property rights. Um, and and right. with that being the case, then a lot of 
libertarian arguments about you know this the government doing this is a violation of my property rights and I have an absolute right in this so it needs to stop or the government taking my money in taxation is a violation of my property rights because it's stealing from me those just kind of drop by the side because they're based on just a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of property yes yes so you're right then there are these different versions of that uh, of, of that argument uh, so I think um, um, uh, the first thing that has to be said is that the the the, the claim that uh, that the particular libertarian principles give, are very abstract principles, right? And uh, there are different types of arguments that people give for the basic libertarian principles of you know rights to life, liberty, and property, and so on. I give more natural rights types of arguments. Other people give more sort of Humean, Hayekian, mutual advantage type arguments. This is just but, a this is a good uh, time for me to pop in and plug the the book that we published that you contributed a excellent chapter to um, yes. Arguments for Liberty, which we'll put a, a link to and is is free online. That is just that. It's a whole bunch of different theories being used to argue for these libertarian principles. Right. Right, right, and 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 I agree. I like most of the, I like almost all the articles in that book, <laughs> and I like one in particular, I guess. Um, um, but but the philosophical reasoning is limited to, uh, and if, if, and one hopes it can accomplish this, uh, to identifying and defending certain principles, political principles that are. Stated very abstractly, and there's a certain inherent vagueness in these uh, abstract statements. Uh, and it's a huge mistake, and I don't think you can really find libertarians who, many libertarians who make this mistake. It's a huge mistake to think that philosophical reasoning can deduce the sort of fine grained rules that we really need in order to interact with one another. So that rules that really enable us to know whether I have to avoid stepping across that little corner of your property or it's okay for me to step across it, right? Uh, libertarian principles are not going to solve anything like that. Um, and the only person I can think of in the libertarian tradition who thought that libertarian principles, libertarian reasoning would get you answers to everything at, uh, on that sort of level was probably Lysander Spooner, and he was wrong about that. Um, so. Uh, but what the, so what the libertarian has to do is to say, look, um, uh, there are these certain abstract principles, and these abstract principles rule out a whole range of possible enforceable rules, right? They've, you know, principles about uh, uh, people having rights over themselves, rights of self ownership, rule out uh, any sort of uh, uh, actual positive law that uh, that enacts slavery or anything that approaches being slavery rules out uh, conscription and rules out uh, uh, mandated uh, national service. So there are many, many things that the abstract principles rule out. Uh, the abstract principles say that people have a right to acquire and use property. Uh, but it doesn't say exactly what individuals have to do in order to acquire property in a body of water, <laughs> if you can do that, or property in a deposit of some valuable sort of ore. Um, so 
what happens, what, what we actually get in the real world are highly, highly, much more highly specific, much more highly grained uh, sets of more concrete principles. And what uh, libertarians can demand is that the particular set of complicated set of more concrete principles that we have, those are uh, eligible <laughs> for endorsement because they are compatible with the basic libertarian principles. Um, and by the way, it also has to be added that the actual principle, the actual concrete rules that we have uh, are never uh, endorsed on the basis of complicated philosophical reasoning. They arise through custom and judicial decision and all that sort of Hayekian stuff. So, um, so it's, what's really striking is that every libertarian or classical liberal thinker I know of, except for Spooner, said essentially this. So Locke says, uh, we have to have positive law in order for the natural law to be drawn closer in order for people to more clearly understand what's required by the natural law. And, you know, I could quote you many other people. What, what people like Nagel and Murphy and Nagel do is they say, well, uh, philosophical reasoning can't give us the highly specific sets of rules that we need to actually operate on a daily basis with one another. Therefore, philosophical reasoning of a libertarian sort can have no possible role and no possible purchase. But they're wrong. Philosophical reasoning of a libertarian sort can tell us what the limited set of acceptable particular rules would be. And part of the justification for people having to abide by those particular sets of rules is that these rules instantiate or concretize the principles that philosophical reasoning identifies. And so uh, I may have gone off track. I don't think I went off track there, but I may have gotten, gotten away from your question a little bit. The, 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 uh, and so it's not, if you, didn't, if you recognize that convention and accident and happenstance and reliance on people's wisdom or customary practices will actually play a role in the particular rules that we are expected to abide by, that's not at all to give a blank check to, certainly to legislators <laughs> to come up with particular rules. It's at most to say, well, uh, these rules are not going to be entirely the product of these philosophical reflections. They're going to they're going to have to be concretized in some. And if they're concretized, if we're so lucky to live in a world in which which we are semi lucky, if we're so lucky or semi lucky to live in a world in which most of the rules are liberty respecting rules, property respecting rules, contract respecting rules, uh, then uh, what we have to say is these particular rules are our way of concretizing these abstract rules, and it's because the abstract rules are justified that we ought to obey and respect these exemplifications of them. It seems so, odd because the, the 
yeah. way that objection is brought to libertarianism, and I know a lot of people who think it's a it's sort of a crushing objection to libertarianism. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah. but what you said about abstract principles of justice needing concrete instantiation. Well, that's true of Rawls. You don't you don't go into a Rawls book and see all the rules for property rights and all the rules for who goes to school and everything. And no one ever says that's a problem with Rawls. But I think that one of the reasons they they don't, they don't criticize Rawls for that is because they think that libertarianism denies the mechanisms by which you figure out those concrete rules, like sort of state courts or other state procedures, which I think is just is is erroneous. It does not by itself deny those mechanisms. But for some reason, we're held to a different standard than other abstract political philosophies for how concrete we right. our philosophy right. needs to get. Right. Now, I think in the case of the, you know, this sort of rules, you know, quasi rulesian rulesian by osmosis uh, perspective, um, we go back to this idea of basic structure. So for rules or quasi rulesians, um, the there's a certain there's a certain profile of things, a certain profile of liberty, a certain profile of opportunity, a certain profile of uh, of uh, income that. And society is supposed to conform to that profile, and Rawls rightly says only if there are institutions that are fairly continuously tinkering with the rules will those profile be achieved or maintained. And so for Rawls, um, the role of the more concrete rules is not to instantiate our right of liberty or our right of property or our right of contract, the role of all of these more concrete rules is to contribute as best one can tell at this moment of history into to contribute to the society as a whole being the way, according to rules, a just society should be, <laughs> right? So it's it's all top down. It's all top down for uh, for Rawls, for Nagel, for Murphy, um, and therefore because it's all top down, there's no place for them for people to object to a particular rule that has been promulgated. By saying this rule runs contrary to an abstract right that I have with respect to rights over myself or with respect to property or with respect to contract, there is no basis to object to what comes down from the top <laughs> on these Rawlsian and Murphy and Nagel. Uh, perspectives. Uh, and that's why Rawls, it's, it's really weird that Rawls says, here's my objection to libertarianism. It doesn't leave room for a world where the social order is dictated from the top by really, really great social engineers, right? As though um, uh, libertarianism is unaware that that's the alternative, and libertarianism, of course, rejects that alternative. Uh, but Rawls says the problem with libertarianism is it rejects that alternative. It rejects the top-down structuring of society. Um, very weird.
Yeah. Let's move on to another one, which I think has become kind of common, at least when the Trump era amongst some of my my friend <laughs> my friends who yes. who don't hate yes. Trump as much as I do. Uh, it's a sort of a conservatism right. objection, but but one that's specific to libertarianism, which says that libertarianism yeah. is so minimally. Yeah normative it, it just requires yeah. you know sort of yeah. not taking the people's stuff and not hurting them that it fails right. to create a coherent community and and i've had friends who said that they they kind of left libertarianism because they realized there wasn't enough there for values to live your life on and what they saw in the libertarian community were a bunch of of sort of very people living their life in a kind of a burning man side of fashion but but not promoting kind of values of community and that we could use the government to to even do this on the margins a little bit and help create a stronger, more, co more cohesive society that's not at each other's throats all the time, which which maybe we kind of are, yeah. that, are that way now. So how should we take that argument? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there, that sort of argument can get some tr traction uh, because some libertarians uh, – have been ethical relativists, relativists, ethical subjectivists. Uh, uh, there was a period of time when uh, uh, standard uh, uh, liberals uh, would argue for, for instance, toleration by saying, well, who's to say what, what is a decent way of living or an indecent way? All morality is authoritative, and therefore we don't want to endorse any sort of morality. Uh, so that's a mistaken view. <laughs> uh, libertarians shouldn't endorse that. Classical liberals, standard liberals shouldn't endorse that type of relativistic or subjectivist view. Uh, and it's true that if you are deeply skeptical of all normative claims, um, uh, you're not going to have uh, uh, a sort of working, stable uh, social order, I guess, unless unless you uh, 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 unless you just have uh, a heavy-handed uh, Stalinist or Mussolini-type dictator at the top, um, so um, so there's it's true that some type of moral order, some sort of normative consensus, has to exist in society for it to uh, to be functional. Um, and uh, the question then becomes, well, how thick? Right, and at what level of abstraction do you have that normative consensus? And the so the uh, so the conservative that you're talking about is right to say against some people some sort of normative consensus is needed. The people who are scared when they hear that <laughs> are right to be scared because the normative consensus that people normally have in mind is a very substantive normative consensus. This is the way that everyone should live their lives. This is the, this is, these are the, uh, the, uh, the uh, norms that everybody in their personal lives uh, should live. I think uh, a while back when you were describing this view, uh, you said uh, it was the view that uh, uh, the objection was that people need values to live their lives by. Uh, and that's true, of course, but it doesn't mean that everybody needs the same values, but there does need to be something in common. And I'm going to say the obvious thing here. I think the thing that people have in common in a, an open, classical, liberal, libertarian society are the basic norms that allow people to live 
tolerantly and at peace with one another and in an environment in which it's possible for them to uh, enter into mutually advantageous, mutually uh, voluntary uh, agreements. That is a, that it's, it's, this is not, <laughs> this is not an easy thing. Uh, and maybe we don't yet know whether human beings are capable of maintaining a society that is held together by that that thin a normative consensus. Uh, but it's not it's not it's not horribly thin. I mean, I remember after the 9/11 attacks. So this was now a long time ago. Uh, that someone came up with this great um, um, TV uh, public service announcement thing where just uh, people who are obviously of different ethnicities, dressed in different ways, people of obviously different religions, would just come on for a second and say something like, I am an American, right? And then somebody else who looked very different would come on and say, I am an American, right? And of course, what's conveyed by that is that uh, uh, there's 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 something about being an American which presumably is not uh, living one's life just as that particular person on the screen at that moment lives his or her life, right? What is it? Well, it's a type of toleration for other people, a type of recognition of other people's right to live their own lives as they choose. It's uh, tolerate, and I I don't think that it's that hard for people. Uh, to learn that uh, that this is an enormously attractive thing, right? It's a, it seems to me very attractive whenever I go somewhere and I see people who are living lives which are quite different from the life I want to live, uh, but they're able to do that. They're allowed to do that. They've, uh, uh, they're trying out life of a different sort than a life that I have. Uh, you know, and now I'm thinking of something like the last chapter of Nozick's Anarchy State and Utopia, which is called the Framework of Utopia, uh, uh, in which we can all value and enjoy a world in which other people are as free as we are to live in the way that they choose to live. And I think that's the, uh, you know, to get sort of patriotic, that I think is the key American idea. Um, and, uh, um, it's pretty powerful if people, uh, are able to articulate it in a way that doesn't scare others into thinking that, uh, that their ways of life are about to be suppressed. I think we could also say that this particular objection is somewhat like mistaken on its own terms. So on the one mm -hmm. hand, the people who typically make this kind of objection are frequently religious um, and see say like a breakdown in <clears throat> religious order or or kind of traditional you know tr like a lot of this like <clears throat> traditional gender roles are falling apart or right. traditional hierarchies right. are falling apart right. Um, right. and so on on the one hand you have kind of a historical like the united states historically has been you know extraordinarily religiously vibrant um, mm -hmm. you know arguably it's historically the you know matched only by kind of the historical experience of India in terms of just like the number of religions and the religious innovation that took place and continues <clears throat> to take place um, and that, you know, and we 
Americans are much more religious than people in other parts of kind of the West. Um, And then then in those areas where the church has been – where we've had the kind of more government enforcing these things, the church tends to atrophy. um, People tend to drop out and so on. So like freeing people up to explore these ideas often leads to them being much more widespread. But the other one is that it feels like a lot of this objection is mistaking tastes for values. So that people mm-hmm. think what we need mm-hmm. is to enforce a set of values, but what they really mean is that in a in a free society, people might have different tastes than I do. They might mm-hmm. like different things mm-hmm. than I do. They might yep. speak differently than I do. They might have different living arrangements than I would prefer, and right. that is somehow that that's a breakdown in values. When in fact it's yes. not, and so I'm yes. often struck by when I hear people making yeah. these objections, yeah. Yeah. and then they list kind yeah. of the litany of like here's the here's the evidence of societal decline. My reaction always like the world's a lot better because it's not the way that you say you want it to be. It's because yeah. those yeah. are just your tastes. Yeah. No, I I, I like that because I, I was suggesting that um, uh, uh, you know we have these you know, these basic sort of social or political norms which are freedom and tolerance uh uh respecting norms and then um then that and that's consistent with with uh people in that society being in other ways utterly different from one another but i think your point is that actually what might per- be perceived as really fundamental differences among people are differences in the particular way they are pursuing often the very same values, right? <laughs> so imagine, imagine people, you know, the value of family, right? But the way people from different cultures pursue that is going to be different, right? And maybe that's where their taste, right, differs from one another. But even though they look like they're living quite differently, their values, their non-political values are actually closer to one another than it appears. So I like that a lot. Now you've been doing the the libertarian playing the libertarian game for a while, and and as we're talking yeah. about critics of libertarianism, yeah. on a more yeah. general point, uh, how do you think or how libertarians treat the critics of libertarian libertarianism, which can be sometimes not very well? Uh, people take people who are dogmatic libertarianism libertarians uh-huh. often don't listen to the other side. So I guess in a yeah. more general sense. Yeah. Uh, you know what can what should libertarians like? Why should libertarians read the critics of libertarianism? Yeah. And then how and yeah. why should we yeah. we you know tr- seriously treat their arguments and and give them the respect that they're due? Yeah. Not not all the critics, yeah. but at least yeah. the ones that that yeah. are worthy of respect. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in a funny position because that's been my job. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, for a long time. Uh, so and I can tell you that what uh, I don't know. I think academic libertarians are much better at treating with respect and care anti-libertarian political philosophers than the other way around. And I've just recently talked to some people, uh, younger people in political philosophy who are having uh, tremendous trouble getting their articles accepted at professional journals. Uh, And it's quite clear to me that uh, uh, very, very politically loaded uh, 
uh, standards are being used against them. Uh, so, which is disappointing because uh, I've liked to, I have enjoyed thinking that, that within the philosophical world, there's some level of <laughs> uh, uh, respect for the quality of the argument. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, everyone who thinks of themselves as a libertarian or thinks of themselves as uh, uh, a libertarian intellectual or thinker uh, should spend enormous amounts of time uh, reading uh, uh, esoteric, anti-philosophical, non-anti-libertarian non writers. I mean, uh, lots of academic philosophy is just horrible to read. Uh, and lots of uh, it involves such deep and implicit anti-libertarian premises that the books can go on and on forever uh, working out the implications of the anti-libertarian premises, right? And uh, uh, it's not going to be an efficient use of time to to devote oneself to these things. So it's a, it's hard. I, uh, I think, uh, uh, um, so I think actually there would be a, 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 a good service to libertarianism would be uh, for libertarian oriented people to write more uh, material that would make uh, the anti-libertarian arguments available to libertarians without the without imposing on those people the incredible cost of actually spending huge amounts of time reading the non-libertarian political philosophers. I mean, uh, yeah, I think so. That's 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 actually a, a little advertisement for this one chapter of my book, which does a little bit of that. Uh, and uh, um, um, I think other people are doing that. Now, I've just been reading um, uh, Bas van der Vossen and uh, Jason Brennan have this book called In Defense of Openness, uh, which is uh, a defense of uh, open borders and free trade and so on. And they, in several places, do a really nice job in the course of that book in sort of giving a, I think, an accurate but... Uh, but mercifully short uh, account of the philosophical opposition to their positions. So, uh, yeah. Um, but I think the main thing is, I think the main thing is not who you read and so on, but what your attitude has to be, uh, right? Uh, uh, back in the old days when I had some connection with the Randian world, right? You, you were taught uh, if somebody says something that you think is wrong, that proves that they're incredibly evil and not worth talking to, and you should do your best to embarrass and bash them as much as possible, right? Uh, but that's not true. <laughs> there are all sorts of people who uh, sincerely have these objections uh, and probably welcome a serious conversation about whether these objections are good or not. And so uh, at least that should be the attitude of libertarians when they encounter uh, these, uh, these uh, sorts of arguments. Thanks for listening. 
Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.